morning. Uh, if we can, let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 3. And during this time, I'd like to dismiss our kids to our children's ministry. Let's give our kids a big hand for being with us today. Always love having a chance to worship with them. Once again, John chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 16 to 21. So some very familiar verses here um, that people have seen here. John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. My name is Kenson. I have the honor of being the pastor here at Park, specifically our Bridgeport location. So an honor to be with you guys uh, today. Now, as you guys are turning to John chapter 3 here, uh, we are continuing in our series in John. But specifically today, I think as Rafe Sari mentioned, that as an entire church across all nine locations, we want to focus in on today on what it means to love the world like God loves the world. And let me just show you the vision statement that Rafe just mentioned for us as a church. And it says this, Park Community Church exists to be a biblical community where the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives, renews the city, and impacts the world. A third of our vision statement is committed to seeing the gospel go out to all the nations so that all peoples will worship Jesus Christ. That this vision is big because our God is big. That he is the God of the South Loop. He's the God of Chicago, the God of every nation, tribe, tongue, and all creation. He is worthy to be made known to the ends of the earth. Amen? Amen. So with that, let's go ahead, read our verses, pray, and then we're going to jump right in, okay? So John chapter 3, starting at the famous verse in verse 16. And it reads like this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that as we hear your word, that God, that we would just echo what we sung earlier, that we would see Jesus, that his name would be above every name, our name, that God, that our wills would be surrendered, that we would be obedient before your word, that we would find delight, because these are your words. You do speak to us. You do guide us. You do tell us how much you love us. Father, I pray for myself. God, again, just put me to the side and help Christ to be exalted. And friends, as we go into this sermon, would you be willing to say this dangerous prayer to God? God, send me. God, send me. Would you say that to him right now? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, the first time I wrestled with the idea of what it might mean to go to the nations for Jesus, you know, I was sitting in my New Testament class in seminary, and as we studied the Bible, we were taught about how God's redemptive plan has always been a global plan. Yes, it's very personal, but it's global in nature. So one evening, as the professor is teaching the class here, like, I think the Spirit just convicts him, 
And he goes off script, and he just drops a truth bomb on all of us in the class here. And he looks at the class here. He sees all 30 of us here, and he says, you're wrong for being here. And I'm like, well, I paid the tuition. I'm pretty sure I belong here. You know, I, I, I belong here. But then he continued, many of you are being disobedient to God by being here in the States. How is it possible that in a room of 20 plus people, all of you looking to become Christian leaders, and every single one of you have no intentions of going overseas? The West is saturated with churches. We don't need more churches here. The nations need more churches. And he said one more time, you're wrong for being here. You know, after that class, you know, I knew that he was speaking to all of us in the classroom, but I felt like, man, God was really speaking to me. Because when I was sitting in that seat, I have never once considered that God might want me to go somewhere else. That I have always assumed that this is where he wants me to be. So this began a long journey of scary prayers and steps of faith for me and my wife. That as we started going on these short-term global trips, every night as we're across the ocean somewhere else, we're asking, God, is it here? Is this the place? When we would meet with global partners that we support or people who are about to head out as missionaries, we asked them, should we go with them? God, should we go with them? Or as we would sit through a global sermon like this to ask ourselves, is this the time? Is this the time? Now, obviously, we're here in Chicago because we believe that God wants us to be faithful with the gospel here, but this does not mean that God still can't call us to the nations because he is God and that it will always be on the table. But I'm not going to lie to you. It is scary to consider what this all might mean. It's scary to open up your hands and say, God, wherever you want me to go. It's scary to say to God, send me. That it's scary to preach a sermon like this because you need to know that before you hear this sermon, I've already preached this thing 12 times, 20 times to myself already here. God's already doing a work in my heart. For many of us, we share this same fear and it's this fear that keeps us from going that maybe this is the same fear that keeps you from praying these prayers. Friends, let me ask you, are you wrong for being here? Have you assumed too much in thinking that God wants you here? Has the great commission become the great omission? That so often we think that for global work, you know, it's just for those missionaries, it's for those radical Christians, you know, it's for those who receive that special calling. That is not the case at all. The calling to go to the nations is for all of us who claim to follow Jesus Christ. That Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1.8, go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And Jesus wasn't looking at some disciples and ignoring others. He was looking at all of his disciples. That when it comes to the nations, it's not if God is sending us, it's when and where is God sending us. If God is sending us to stay here Praise God. If he's telling us to go overseas, praise God. If he's telling us to go somewhere dangerous, praise God because his grace is always sufficient for the call. To be a Christ follower is to be a global Christ follower. You know, John Stott, an English Anglican priest, said this. Let me show you a quote here. He said this. We must be global Christians 
with a global vision because our God is a global God. So with that, let's look at our verses here and see God's heart for the nations. And for you guys who like to take notes, here are three insights to outline our sermon today. And here are three points. Love for the nations, urgency for the nations, and hope for the nations. So first point is this. Love for the nations. Verse 16. For God so loved the world. God's love is global. The word world here in the Greek is cosmos. And what this means is that God loved the whole of humanity. That he doesn't just love a certain group of people or a certain ethnicity or a certain culture. God loves all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all cultures, all languages because people are all made in his image. And they all carry the same weight and dignity and value of life. God cares for them. God cares for you. God cares for me. God cares for all of us. He cares for the world. God's love is global. This is why when you open up the Bibles from the first pages of Genesis all the way to the last pages of Revelation, God has been working this great redemptive global plan. For example, in Romans, it says that the gospel is no longer just for the Jews, but now also for the Gentiles. That in the book of Acts, when the first Christ followers got too comfortable and started staying in their holy huddles and refused to leave Jerusalem to make Jesus known, God sends a persecution in there to spread his people out to every village and city. That in Revelation, we see every nation, tribe, and tongue proclaiming the name of Jesus. That sin has divided all of humanity, but in the very final picture that we see, Jesus reconciles all humanity to himself. Our God is a multicultural, diverse, global God who loves the whole world. Now, what does this love look like here? Just look to Jesus. If you want to see this love, look to Jesus. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, God's love is not like the love of the world. That as a culture, We've made the word love so cheap and vague that I can love Jesus, but I can also love a taco. Like, I can use the same word for that. And what's happening here is that with the word love is that now it's become all about my emotions. It's all about being in the moment. And here's the problem with that. Emotions come and go. Emotions go up and down all the time. So in the same way, if our love is purely based on emotions, it will come and go because emotions come and go. This is why in our culture, love is flippant. Love is not sustaining. Love is not safe. But this is not the love of God. God's love is not first about feelings or what we say. God's love for us is first about action. For example, I can tell my wife all day, you know, baby girl, I love you. I don't say that, but you know, I love you. I love you. But if I do nothing for her, she ain't going to believe it. If I tell my kids, you know what, I love you, but I never show up to any of their things, my words are empty. Love is rooted in action. Now, I'm not saying that there's no feelings in love. Yes, there has to be feelings in love. But feelings is not what ultimately defines biblical love. You know, if I can put it this way, love is sometimes what we feel, but it's always what we do. Let me just say that again. Love is sometimes what we feel, 
but it's always what we do. And this is how we know that God loves the world because he didn't just say it, he showed it. Because he gave his one and only son. That this was a life, this was a love that sacrificed. That it wasn't a love that was convenient or comfortable. He didn't give us his leftovers. He didn't give his least favorite son here. He gave us the closest thing to his heart. His one and only son. And if you guys like writing in your Bible, circle the word in verse 16, so. So. Because God didn't just love the world. He so loved the world. This is a word that talks about the volume of God's love for the world. That it is deep. That it is generous. That it is sacrificial. Church, do we love the nations this much? You know, I think what happens more often is that instead of loving the nations, we love an adventure. We love that once-in-a-lifetime experience. We love eating exotic foods. We love Instagramming our travels to show how much better my life is than yours, right? We love what the nations can give us, but we hardly ever give any thought to the spiritual state of the nations. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to travel or to enjoy traveling or to go overseas. Traveling is a great way to find rest and to experience God's beauty. The concern I'm expressing is this, is that when it comes to the nation, we are quick to go, to take and consume, but we are so slow to go with love and sacrifice. When it says, for God so loved the world, God is not loving structures, he's not loving food, he's not loving picturesque settings here, he loves the people. This is why God will sometimes send us to the most dangerous places to the world to share the gospel because people live in those dangerous places. This is why God sends Jesus into a broken and sin-filled world, a world that he knew would kill his son, because that's just how great his love is for the world. Amen? Amen. Here's the second insight. Urgency for the nations. Urgency for the nations. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, when it comes to human destiny, Jesus says that there's only two roads. One that leads to him and life everlasting, and one that leads away from him and death everlasting. And when you guys read the Gospels, Jesus taught a lot about hell. And when he talked about hell, he did not hold back. He called it a place of eternal torment. He called it a place of the gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal darkness, a place where there was a lake of fire, that this is a place of conscious suffering and torment that lasts forever. When Jesus talks about hell, notice here that he's not giving us a travel brochure here, right? He is giving us the worst possible picture of hell for us to consider. Why? It's because he wants to discourage anyone from ever going there. And this is the reality of eternal punishment. And this is the, this is the reality that, that needs to create a sense of urgency and burden for us to go to the nations because this eternal punishment is what we all deserve. In verse 18, it says this, For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Already. Belief. Eternal life with Jesus. Paradise. Paradise. That is not our starting point. 
Disbelief, eternal death, punishment, that is our starting point. One of the most dangerous lies we can believe is that I'm a good person, and because I'm a good person, I deserve the blessings of God. I deserve heaven. The reason that this is a lie is because God says that it's a lie. Romans chapter 3 says this, and let me just show you the verse here. Romans 3 says this, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. When God looks at creation, all he sees is people under sin. That later on in verse 23 of Romans 3, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when he says all, he says everybody. He says all of us. He says all of the nations, all of the world. And what we need to know is that when we talk about what is good here, it starts to feel very unfair in our hearts to hear God say this. But we have to understand that this standard of good is never set by us. Because if it was set by us, we will always see ourselves as better. Because none of us here are walking around trying to compare ourselves to Mother Teresa or to the Pope. None of us are doing that, right? We always compare ourselves with those worse than us. That, but when it comes to God, his standard of good is not each other. It's not one of us. His standard of good is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the perfect standard, and we all fall short. In John 3.19, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. This is what he's determined. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus came into the world and shined the light of God's truth that he was God's presence incarnate. And humanity, instead of running to him in repentance and help, they run from him. Like a criminal that sneaks around in the dark and when the light is turned on and exposes him, they run, they run. They can't stand the light. And, the, and we do the natural thing. This is our spiritual condition. We love the darkness more than the light. And as we see play out in the Gospels, we love the darkness so much that we would crucify the light. That's how much we love the darkness. This is why there must be an incredible urgency for the nations because we stand already condemned. We are all perishing. Did you know that there are about 16,000 people groups in the world? And a people group is defined as a group with a distinct language and culture. And of those 16,000 people groups, 6,700 of them are considered unreached. That these are groups that have no one from their indigenous community who believe in Jesus and is sharing the good news with them. Now, unreached people groups are not the same as those who are spiritually lost because those who are unreached have no access to the gospel. So, for example, my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, my coworker who doesn't know Jesus, well, I work in a church, so they all, they all know Jesus, but you know what I mean, right? My, my, if, we didn't, if we didn't, that would be a big problem, okay? So, you know, my parents who don't know Jesus, you know, religiously open countries, right? They might be spiritually lost, but they're not unreachable. God has placed me in their lives. God has placed believers in their lives. They're reachable. Unreached people groups don't have that gospel presence. And because of that, they are perishing because they are never having the opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I know that as soon as I say that, a very common question is asked. Kenson, how can God hold someone accountable who has never heard the gospel? Come on, man. How can God hold that person accountable? That maybe a tribe worshipped the sun, okay? And that was just the best they could do with what they knew. They just worshipped the sun. Isn't that good enough? God has to give them a pass. You know, this thinking has numerous problems. First, nowhere is it supported in the Bible. That's number one. Second, it would also contradict the Bible because the Bible teaches that salvation is only through Jesus. Let me just show you three verses that are very clear on this. Many more than this, but three verses very clear. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We need to think about this. To say that there is another way to salvation, whether it be through ignorance or through good intentions, would be to say that Christ's suffering and death was not necessary. Now, Jesus, it was really nice that you died for us. It's really nice that you lived a perfect life. It's really nice that you suffered for us, but you really didn't have to do it. That cheapens the work of the cross. And finally, this is a problem from a very practical standpoint. Point. If people's ignorance towards God would guarantee them heaven, the best thing we could do for the nations, the best things we can do for the world is to stop sharing the gospel. It's to close all our churches because to share it would now make them accountable that if this is true, we need to stop commissioning global workers immediately. We need to tell Rafe, you were wrong to have that interview up here. We can't be talking about Jesus Christ. We need to let the world know that if anyone even dares mention the name of Jesus to you, put your fingers in your ear and run away from them. Do you guys see? To believe that there's another way to salvation than Jesus is to kill all efforts to make Jesus known. It kills all urgency for mission. And here's the final point. Hope for the nations. That even though we stand condemned already before God, this is the good news. God loves us and sends Jesus to the world. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Once again, when God loves, he acts. That throughout these verses, notice here that God is the primary actor. That he's the one who loves. He's the one who gives. He's the one who sends. He's the one who comes to us. He's the light that comes to us. That in our spiritual state, when we are not seeking after God, he sought us. And he didn't do this because he was compelled by anything good or noble about ourselves. We were already condemned. We loved the darkness. So when God chooses to love us, it's not because of us, but it's in spite of us of us here, that his love is not based on our response to him, but purely by his own choosing. So in love, when God sees a broken world, he doesn't run from us, but he runs towards us. He sends Jesus to save us. 
You know, as you guys talked a little bit about this last week, you know, our verses come in the context of a conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus in verses 1 through 15. And it's in this conversation, Jesus is teaching this religious leader what it means to have eternal life, what it means to be born again spiritually. And the way that Jesus illustrates this is by referencing a story in Numbers 21. We see this in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Jesus ends by saying this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Life. Now, once again, what's happening in this story is the Israelites have been in the desert and they've been whining about their condition. They've been whining about this food, this manna that God's been providing for them faithfully day in and day out. But they just keep whining. They're, they're so ungrateful. So God sends snakes into their midst and it starts biting people and people start dying and they begin to cry out and say, God, help us, save us here. So God in his kindness provides another way. He tells Moses, I want you to go ahead and make a bronze serpent and put it on the pole. And you tell these dying people that all they have to do is look up and look at this pole here and they would be healed. Can I just tell you something? If I was an Old Testament reader back then, I would have no clue what's going on right now. No clue whatsoever. Why in the world would God want me to look at the very thing that is killing me? It's in these verses Jesus explains what Numbers 21 really means. That this bronze serpent was going to be a picture of the cross to come. That Jesus would take on the curse of our sin. That he would take on our evil. That he would take on the very thing that is killing us. And he too would be hanged on a pole, on a wooden cross. And just like these Israelites who were perishing, we too are perishing. But if we look up to the pole, if we look up to the cross, we will find life. And this is not a works-based salvation. Notice here that all we need to do, all the Israelites had to do was look. Not crawl, not stand up. All they had to do was look up and in the same way... For us to receive eternal life, it's not about doing, it's not about earning, it's not about striving, it's not about working. All we have to do is trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. For those who believe, there is no longer any condemnation for those in Christ because Christ was condemned for us. That we are spared from perishing because Jesus perished for us. That there is no longer a need for us to hide in the darkness because when God shines the light, he does so to find us, not to punish us, but he shines the light to find us so that he can save us. When it comes to the demands of our salvation, all we need to do is trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? And this is the gift of salvation that is for anybody who believes. The word whoever in these verses means anyone. It means you. It means me. It means every tribe, every village, every people group, every nation, every sinner from bad to worst. Anyone who believes has Jesus Christ. He will love you. He will forgive you. He will care for you. He will provide for you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will never betray you. Your burden has been lifted. Your sins have been forgiven. Your destiny is secure. This is for whoever believes in Jesus Christ. 
This is how much he loves us. This is how much he loves the nations. In love, God has made another way. He sends Jesus Christ. And this is good news that the nations need to hear. Amen? Amen. So what's the takeaway? It's this. In love, God moved towards the world. In love, we now move towards the world. John 20, 21 says this. Let me show it to you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Once again, it's not if God is sending you. It's when and where. And for some, it's in our neighborhoods. It's in our work. It's in our school. It's to our friends. It's to our family. For others, God is sending us to serve globally, maybe in a local way, that he's calling us to serve the immigrant population or international students around us. Did you guys know that more than 80% of Muslims who are here in Chicago right now would say that they do not know a single person who is a follower of Jesus? And for some of you, God is sending you to the nations. And I know that for most of us in this room here, we probably think that this is the last thing God wants from my life. But when you consider every page of scripture and how it drips for love for the nations, could it be possible that going is the first thing God wants from all of us and that for us to stay here would require a special calling? Could that be possible? You know, back in the late 1880s, a long time ago, Robert Spear, a Presbyterian pastor, gave a sermon to college students about the call to missions. This was called the Student Volunteer Movement. And let me just read to you what he said to them over 100 years ago. He said this, There is something wonderfully misleading, full of hallucination and delusion, in the business of missionary calls. With many of us, It is not a missionary call at all we are looking for. It is a shove. There are a great many of us who would never hear a call if it came. If men or women are to have special calls for anything, they ought to have special calls to go about their own business, to have a nice time all their lives, to choose the soft places, to make money, and to gratify their ambitions. Friends, these were words that were said over 100 years ago but they're still so relevant for us today. Do you need to go? You know, church, if you want to get deeper into what this all means, you know, Rafe's already giving you guys some really great application, but let me, just consider, let me just share with you to consider two other things. First is this, join a phase one group at Park. that this is a group that we train by our global team and how to have spiritual conversations and to share Jesus Christ with others, that once a week you're going to hit the streets and share the gospel, oftentimes in cross-cultural contact, context. Twice a week, you'll pray for the nations, and three times a week, you'll open up your Bible and let God shape your heart. And secondly, consider taking your professional skills overseas to work in a company globally so that you can be part of a team that shares Jesus with others. You can get all this information in the back at our Connect Bar. You know, as we close, you know, I want to end by sharing a video with you guys uh, of a bunch of stories from our global workers in Turkey and what it's been like for them to love the world as God loves the world. And I just want to encourage you guys that as you guys watch this video, it's going to be about nine minutes long here, I want you guys to ask God to open your heart and maybe even say to him, is it here? Is this where I need to go? Is it now? Would you say those prayers to him? So let's show the video. (laughs) 